Welcome to the 25th Bowser Museum's podcast. It sounds a little cliched, but we have a bumper episode coming up. We've been celebrating LGBT History Month in lots of ways, including our ever-popular virtual coffee morning. We were honoured to be joined by five guest speakers, sharing stories and insight into LGBT in Barnsley, and also a little further afield. In this podcast, you're going to hear from Ken Brooks, a volunteer at Maurice Dobson Museum and Heritage Centre, talking about Maurice Dobson and his partner, Fred Halliday. Stephen Miller from Barnsley Libraries, author of The Uncovered Barnsley Project, will be talking about discovering untold stories of Barnsley's LGBT plus past. We'll also be joined by Jenny Rudd from the National Trust, Wentworth Castle Gardens, talking about her research and forthcoming talk on Lady Mary Wortley Montague, the pioneer of the smallpox vaccine. From Scotland, we'll be joined by Kate Charlesworth, a Bouncy-born author and illustrator, speaking about her experiences about her recent book, Sensible Footwear, A Girl's Guide. The event is hosted by the wonderful Jane Dowell, who is the facilitator of the Bouncy Heritage Connects project. First up, we're going to hear from Stephen Skelly, the Community Heritage Curator at Bouncy Museums. Hi, everyone. Um, just thank you so, so much for everyone taking part today. I'm absolutely infused and wondered by all, all of these wonderful people who are in the middle of lockdown. We've all got virtual fatigue and uh, kind of, um, you know, I, I certainly have. You've all come here today to, to, to kind of uh, listen and learn and just just uh, to be to be part of this. So, so thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a curator at Barnsley Museums and uh, I, I specialise in sort of community work. Um, uh, but I've been kind of working on and off with LGBT collections um, for the last 10 years, really, both doing research at Manchester University uh, with the National Trust or at Wakefield Museums as well. Um, and um, I, I have been up and down the country and kind of look, uh, spoken to many curators and looked at displays that, that have themes or are interpreted with, with LGBT. Uh, and, and it's few and far between or quite tokenistic, really. Kind of, you know, we, we tend to get something that's there for a minute or for, for a history month and then it kind of goes. There isn't a lot of permanence in a lot of galleries, um, although things are, are changing. So... Um, um, in terms of Barnsley, experience Barnsley, the social history collection is only uh, seven years old. Although we've, you know, we've had Cannon Hall and its collections since the 1950s in Barnsley, which, which, you know, but that's more decorative arts collections. We do have an archive, um, and I know Stephen Miller and, and other people before who've done some work on LGBT in, in the borough. Some, some of that material will have worked its way to our archives. But in terms of the museum uh, in, in the town hall and the objects, um, we don't have many at all. You know, we're, we're a fledgling collection, really. Um, so I suppose it's my job to try and represent the district and the history of the district uh, and all the people of the district uh, as, as best I can. So I'm constantly looking out for objects that tell of more diverse stories, different people, uh, people with different ethnicities, uh, uh, stories of disability, because these things, um, and especially LGBT, they tend to get erased from the historical record or they're hidden. Uh, you have to do a bit of digging. Um, you have to read between the lines. Um, certainly, so it's a lot of it's a lot of work in in finding older objects and older stories. Um, but equally, I'm collecting in the here and now as well. So, so 
you know, I'm, I'm collecting things from from people, you know, like like um, well, Roblox is the new thing, isn't it? <laughs> I, re- I, re- I really want a, a kind of Minecraft or some Roblox Lego for the collection because that's the that's the new craze. <laughs> so we're collecting the here and now, so that uh, and, and and I see it as as being the repository of Barnes's memory box. So so my main my main call out to everyone in this group now who has a link to Barnes, be it in the past or present. Please do email Jane and and, and uh, pass on your, your details to me if you have anything from a postcard to a shoe to a pair of glasses, whatever it is that you might want to donate to the museum that might have a, a, in some way a link to, to LGBT because uh, I do want at some stage for us to have a fantastic, big, inclusive exhibition and more LGBT stories woven into the natural tapestry of our social history displays. So nothing tokenistic uh, and things that aren't always interpreted as LGBT, but, but but they have that story there as well when we do want to pull out that, that aspect of history because it is important that certainly for me when I was growing up if I went to a museum and I saw some some stories from some LGBT people that would have made me feel more more welcome in society so so it's important uh, so please do send send your stuff in I need it <laughs> okay that's me thank you very much so uh obviously if anybody wants details it's even is quite easy to contact and easy easy to track down but if anybody wants details, uh, you all have got my email, well, it's the Barnsley Heritage Connect email address. So that's probably the best starting point, would you say, Stephen? Uh, yeah, so yeah. you can take that forward and I can collate any responses and, and people with suggestions. Lovely, thank you for that. That's really, really good and really interesting and positive. So, uh, right, it's uh, time for Ken to talk to us now. So Ken? Absolute expert on Morris <laughs> and his legacy. So, Ken, uh, I know that you are a, a fantastic talker. You've always got lots to say, uh, but your five minutes starts now. <laughs> Tell me when to stop. I will. I'm going to go like that. Does anybody know a good hairdresser? <laughs> <laughs> what yeah, can we know. say about Morris? Darfield's answer to Noel Coward. <laughs> we were born in 1912, a bit before my time. <laughs> I remember him coming to, back to Darfield after his uh, being in the services in the army and in, uh, in uh, working in hotels as a waiter on the South Coast, big hotels, Torquay, Bainton, and latterly in uh, Filey came back when he, he, he gained the tenancy of uh, uh, of the local uh, off-licence, 1956. I was a young lad then, and uh, Darfield Empire, the, the, the local picture place, were across the road, uh, which closed on the 30th of December, 1956. And we'd, we'd go to the pictures and call in the shop for uh, ice cream or a Coca-Cola. Uh, and the tennis club again were across the road from the museum and we did the same. And Morris, nice fella, except he, he, he were a bit sharp. You've got to be very careful. <laughs> he, he, dealt with his, he dealt with the problems because he did have one or two minor problems, but he dealt with them. He were a boxer in the army, 
He'd done 19 years in the forces, so he could handle himself. The police station were only three doors away and he never bothered the police. He dealt with it. Now, you could fall out with Morris in the shop, but Fred, he was a different kettle of fish altogether. What a lovely man Fred was. Even when, uh, even when Fred passed on in 1988, Morris kept his uh, ashes on the mantelpiece and he fell out with them. <laughs> so he put them in a cupboard underneath <laughs> until he fell back in with him and then he put them back on there. They're both now, uh, uh, Morris passed on in 1990 and uh, both the rashes are now scattered in Darfield Churchyard. And we are raising funds just now to have a, a memorial headstone erected close by where we know they are to commemorate uh, both Morris and Fred. So we, 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 it, it, the museum, it's the oldest residential property in Darfield where Morris and Fred lived. They were able to purchase it in 1971 for £900. Beautiful property, uh, but when we took over 1994, it was derelict. It had been empty for four years, uh, and it was all concrete rendered. It was painted black and white. Everything was wrong about the place. Uh, but Jeffrey Hutchinson and six more chaps set about it, and. The, produced a beautiful museum. I think it's the best small museum in England. <laughs> I, I, I'm the guide there if uh, if anybody comes. And if you remember, I, I read you the poem, it was my hundredth poem. Ben, can I ask uh, you something? Yeah. Yeah, so thank you very much for that. What do you think, what would Maurice and Fred think to the museum now? What would be their... Uh, their reaction to it would they be favourable? Do you think? Fred, Fred, Fred wouldn't be. Fred would be fifty-fifty, mm. but Morris, he would be delighted. Mm. It, it, it's exactly what Morris wanted. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, that... there is the Morris Dobson room, where Morris's artifacts fill it, and that's the first room after the shop. That's the first room that you go into. The room is upstairs, so I think Fred would be excited as well. But Fred, a lovely man, he was very quiet, kept himself to himself. Uh, and, and so you don't know really what Fred would be thinking. But it would be nice thoughts, I'm sure. Brilliant. That is so good. I'm Can sure I... that, that people have got questions about Maurice and Fred, so we will be taking questions at the end, Ken, so... Get ready for that, yeah? Is that okay? Yeah. Your five minutes are up. <laughs> right, so uh, I'd like to introduce Stephen Miller next. Stephen, when I looked at your Uncovered uh, film on YouTube, yeah. <laughs> to prepare really and, and to, to explore a little bit more about people's experiences, it actually brought me to tears. I thought it was, it was such a moving 
film and it is quite uh, sobering really to see how attitudes have changed in Barnsley uh, in, in the present day. So I, I think it would be so interesting to hear a little bit more about your project. So over to you, uh, if you'd like to share with the group, please. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks for inviting me along, firstly. Um, I'll just go to, for Morris Dobson for a little bit, just to hang on Morris for a bit more. Um, when I first came to Barnsley, went to the Morris Dobson Museum, I assumed he was some kind of Victorian philanthropist that had left his collections and his house, and, and that was going to be the story. And um, it was Jeff Hutchinson that was showing me around, and he showed me these photographs of this Morris Dobson. I'm like, oh, oh okay, this is, there's more to this story than just a, a collector here. There's obviously something going on. So we, we did a project in 2014, an oral history project called Memories of Morris, where we made a little documentary film. And I was privileged to talk to kind of tens of people that knew Morris and shared the stories of him, not all of whom were willing to be filmed. So there's certainly a lot more uh, about him that's on there. I think Ken describing him as a bit sharp is very generous <laughs> from what I've heard. Um, I'll share the links to that afterwards. Um, and then, yeah, the, the Uncovered project came about really through working with the, the Barnsley LGBT Forum. Um, we'd had various conversations in the build-up to the 50th anniversary of the uh, partial legal, partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in 1967. And, and the problem was there was, they found they were going into schools talking about LGBT history, but they were just telling the same old stories and they weren't relevant to Barnsley. You know, it was Oscar Wilde, it was Anlis, the, the Stonewall riots. It was the same old stuff that really meant nothing to local people growing up in Barnsley today. So they wanted to do something and find out what was going on here. So yeah, we set about with a group of volunteers and started searching the newspapers. And we found, you know, tens and tens of cases of primarily men um, that were involved with other men. Um, I say primarily men. Um, a lot of the sources that we drew on were due to the fact that it was illegal. It's never been illegal for women to have same-sex relationships. That's never been criminalized. So their record in the archives is less prominent. Um, so yeah, we found some fascinating cases from right from the very early 1800s, um, right through the 20th century, um, up to legalization. Perhaps the biggest one was one in, in the 1950s uh, that actually ended up revealing that Barnsley must have had a, a very large um, gay subculture at the time. It involved 15 men who were all arrested, taken to court in Leeds, they got various sentences for the uh, crimes as they were um, ascribed then. Um, but of the 15, they themselves then were talking about many other men whose names they couldn't remember or didn't want to disclose. So actually the 15 probably equates to near, nearly 100 different men within Barnsley that were having relationships with each other regularly for at least a decade uh, since the Second World War. Uh, and in court, they gave some fascinating insights into how that has come about. Uh, the vast majority were ex-soldiers. Um, and a lot of them referenced the fact that being in the army has been a, a prominent feature of, of how they had come by. Um, having sex with men was a, a, was a prominent feature from the army. And the reaction to that was very different. Some were married, had children and talked about feeling very ashamed, um, some referenced having suicidal thoughts, um, but seemed to have an, an inability to stop, um, you know, doing it. Uh, and then completely opposite, there were some that were just kind of like, literally said, oh, I thought it was just a bit fun. You know, I didn't really think anything of it, as if they didn't realise it was illegal, or they just, 
there were so many people doing it that they just thought, well, you know, everyone's it's fine, which was really interesting to note. I think Barnsley is unique and not. I think if you looked at any town, city, village in the country, you would find similar stories. The unique situation in Barnsley links back to coal mining, I think. The stereotypical places that we talk about, you know, same-sex activity between men are, you know, public all-boys schools, prisons, the army. So we're looking at single-sex environments and what has the coal mining industry been in Barnsley since the 1840s? A single-sex environment, men working underground, hot, sweaty conditions, often quite naked, <laughs> um, you know, showering off afterwards. It is no great surprise that these kind of things were going on. I think there's probably a huge amount more to uncover still. A project like that, we only really scraped the surface. I think there's a lot more information out there that, um, yeah, we would love to do more on. That's a whirlwind tour of it. I'll share the links to the website, the films. Uh, if anyone's got any questions, Morris or the Uncovered Project, I'll happily talk through those at the end. Brilliant. Stephen, that's just such a fantastic summary. Thank you. And clearly a starting point for further research, further stories. Brilliant. I, that was just really interesting. I'm sure people are going to have questions on that at the end as well. So thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, Jenny Rudd, uh, Jenny, are you there? I am. Hi, right. So Hi. would you like to t tell us about Lady Mary? Yes, of course. So hello, everybody. Abonadar Richard. I hope I've said that correctly. <laughs> so I became interested in Lady Mary Wortley Montague, hereafter referred to as Lady Mary, about six years ago. Uh, just visiting with my children uh, to went with Castle Gardens and I was drawn towards the Sun Monument with its uh, fine looking obelisk and golden globe at the top. And I managed to make out a very faint inscription at the bottom that said, and I'll, I'll read you this bit, uh, to the memory of the Right Honourable Lady Mary, who introduced inoculation against the smallpox to England from Turkey in 1720. Now I read this and I thought, I know about smallpox. I've learned about this at school. And I was told that it was Edward Jenner who introduced uh, smallpox back in the late 18th century. And I thought, this, this doesn't look right to me. Does the story start here? And does it start with a woman? And I became very interested to find out more. So about 18 months ago, uh, the National Trust uh, took over tenureship, uh, went with Castle Gardens with Barnsley Museums and Northern College. And I became a volunteer garden guide there with really the prime purpose to put together a body of research that I could share with the staff, the volunteers, and hopefully uh, with the visitors to tell the story of this remarkable woman. Now I've prepared 10 minutes of stuff, so I'm, I'm gonna cut out the whole uh, middle section and hopefully you'll come along in April. I can tell you more about the remarkable Lady Mary. So, um, Yes, a remarkable woman of her age, a remarkable woman of any age. Uh, Mary was largely self-educated. Uh, she refused to limit her education to the refinement of the domestic role that 18th century women were expected to occupy. Um, she lived at Thorsby Hall, which is a very grand property in the Duke was in Nottinghamshire. And she had access to the library there and she taught herself uh, to read and write Latin so that she could access uh, academic texts on a range of subjects 
at a time when women were banned from entering university, they were banned from entering professions. Uh, she, so she was very outspoken throughout her life. Uh, she challenged her perceptions of women's role in society. She really was a, a proto-feminist. Uh, she identified as a writer. She wrote throughout her life, but her, her writing tended to be uh, circulated within society in the form of her letters and poems. And she was only ever published uh, the year after her death. Uh, she was also in the context of the theme of the meeting today, uh, possibly bisexual. She certainly had relationships uh, with women, but unfortunately all of her diaries were burnt by her daughter after her death to avoid any scandal. So a lot has been lost, but we can pick up things from her letters. So how did uh, Mary get involved in inoculation and smallpox? Well, the first step really was that she got smallpox. It was endemic in 18th century uh, Britain, um, one in four died. It was also a universal disease. You would expect to get smallpox in the course of your lifetime, very much as we might expect to get the common cold. And it was a really feared disease. So she got smallpox, um, but she survived, but was terribly disfigured. And it was a year after this that she traveled to Turkey. Uh, she was kind of the ultimate uh, travel writer, if you like. She was incredibly curious, very open-minded. She didn't mind uh, dressing up in local costume to just get access to the cultures of the East. And in the spirit of curiosity, she went into a bathhouse in Turkey. Um, she observed the naked women within, and she thought, they're not disfigured like me. Where are their smallpox scars? She said, do you have smallpox? And they said, oh, yeah, we've got smallpox. We've got it under control. We practice inoculation. Mm -hmm. So she um, observed this technique, had her son inoculated and wrote back home to say, uh, I consider it my patriotic duty uh, to champion this technique uh, back in England. So she came home, but she was very pragmatic and uh, had a lot of social intelligence. And she realized uh, that if a woman was seen to be introducing a scientific innovation, it had very little chance of succeeding. So she petitioned the men in her life. She used a lot of persuasion, a lot of perseverance, and she persuaded influential men to uh, champion a series of experiments on uh, into inoculation. The first person being inoculated being her daughter, Mary. Now, unfortunately, um, well, word got out that she was behind uh, these experiments and she uh, came in the fiery line of a lot of abuse. She was accused of being an unnatural mother. Uh, her intelligence was described as masculine. Um, her motivation was described as um, preserving beauty, whereas Jenna was attributed with saving lives. Uh, but one of the early inoculees uh, were the Wentworth family. And obviously they did appreciate uh, Mary's social achievement because they erected the Sun Monument. And it is the first monument to the intellectual achievement of any woman in Britain. The only thing that the Wentworths got wrong was the date. Uh, the first inoculation was in April 1721, uh, which obviously has incredible uh, contemporary relevance. It was the first example of inoculation. And here we all are waiting for our letter mm -hmm. to go and get inoculated, not vaccinated uh, today. 
So at Wentworth Castle Gardens, uh, we're planning a series of events. Uh, we've got an art installation that's starting in March, uh, just a collaborative effort with local uh, families uh, to reinterpret the Sun Monument. Uh, we're updating our social media with kind of questions, frequently asked questions. We hope we'll be asked about Lady Mary and providing answers for them. Uh, we're having a blue plaque um, unveiled uh, to remember Lady Mary's achievement and, uh, and uh, lots of other things. Hopefully I'll be speaking to you in April more about Lady Mary then. Fantastic. Well, I've learned about <laughs> 30 things in the course of just over five minutes there, Jenny. More so to come. <laughs> I found that so interesting. Thank well, you. we are in talks with, with Jenny and she's very kindly said that she will... Uh, produce a talk for us uh, which we'll be sharing on our social media channels in April so you know there I know there is so much more to say uh, but that is just so wonderful uh, and hopefully you know the word will get out that this amazing woman this amazing pioneer mm. was from here in Barnsley uh, and really put Wentworth on the map mm. so thank you very much Jenny and now finally I'm going to turn to Kate Charlesworth. Uh, Kate, I understand, was it Wombwell where you were born? Uh, I was actually born in Barnsley, but my both sides of the family came from Wombwell. And uh, I spent most of my life in South Yorkshire in Wombwell and Darton as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would, so. would you like to spend five minutes just telling us yes. about your work? Yes. And, I'm an and... accidental speaker here. <laughs> <laughs> I just signed up as a punter. Um, yeah, well, um, I, yeah, growing up in Wombwell, um, sorry, there's a pussycat here. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I went to um, art school in Manchester in, in 1968, but before that I'd realised that I was probably a dyke, but we didn't know that word at the time, and, um, and I didn't really do anything about it until I was at college um, in the um, in the early 70s and not long you know I came out went to the rough old gay scene you know Canal Street wasn't like Canal Street is now in Manchester and uh, but it occurred to me very early on that you know these were these communities were, were really special and I thought who's you know, these these need to be um, uh, preserved in some way. You know, the, the knowledge, the experience, and um, and I thought about that for years and years and years mm -hmm. until in just before two thousand, I thought I really do have to draw, make a book about this. You know, a graphic novel, if you like, <clears throat> a comic, and um, and so that's what I that's what I did, and and it's really about the individual. And the collective, and lots of collectives. So, although it is about you know a girl's guide, it's an LGBT plus book. I've tried to be as inclusive as as I possibly could be, but obviously you know it's got um, it's it's all about um, lesbians because we are the invisible ones. We always were made invisible, mm -hmm. part because um, we weren't you know not being illegal was great but it also made us even more invisible because all women are you know historically more invisible if not utterly so 
So um, I made this book, this is, this is it, it's called Sensible Footwear, A Girl's Guide. And um, <clears throat> it weaves my personal story. This was originally just gonna be a hook to hang this huge LGBT history on. And then I think my publishers pointed out that <clears throat> although it was very interesting, it might be even more interesting if it was more personal. So it did become quite a personal thing. One of the personal things in it is that I'm slightly related to Maurice Dobson. <laughs> my, my granddad, Walt Dobson, was a famous old bird man in the, in, as in Dickie Birds, you know, bird breeder in, in the area. Um, he was, his father uh, married twice. So um, my granddad, Walt, was from one side of the Dobsons and Maurice was part of the other. And I'd never, I didn't even know about Maurice until I was around at my grandma's one day and in Wimble, and my mother said, and she said, uh, uh, hey, do you, grandma said, you're out about that Morris Dobson these days. And I said, oh, who's that then? And my mother, my mother who was not at all happy about my sexuality um, said, oh, he's, he's got a, he's a, a cousin of some of, of my dad's. He, he's got a little junk shop in Darfield with another bloke. And I thought, yeah, Jada went ping. I'd been out a long time by then. <laughs> and that would have been in, I think about 1990. And I never had the bottle to go up there and meet Morris. And of course he died very shortly after that. And um, but I, I put, I mean, my God, you know, Morris, what a guy. So this, this is, if you can see, that's, that's the Morris spread in the book and mm. um, so I mean he was I mean I must have been the only person around who never heard of Maurice Dobson even my best mate um, from school her mum was really good good pals with Maurice and used to go dancing with him at one more baths you know and he, she said he never appeared in anything less than full makeup <laughs> and yeah and she she did see him handling himself very well indeed when some bloke um today a big jesse you know that you want horse with him <laughs> and she said apparently morris had been riding along his bike with very tight shorts on at the time and he kind of got off his bike parked the bike up nicely and went to the guy and said oh well you know um, i've heard what you think about me now here's what i think about you and he picked him up and he chucked him over a hedge <laughs> <laughs> so everybody knew you didn't mess with Morris at your own peril. I think it was fantastic. Like, why the hell is this? Why have I never heard about this? Well, you know, not from my mother. Anyway, so um, I was I was really pleased. Apart from that, there was you know there was I wasn't the only gay in the family. Um, just <laughs> so that, that was a fantastic thing for me to be able to include because I mean, after Manchester, I went to London, so it's. It's and then and now I live in Scotland, you know, because um, um, well, I've been up here for nearly 30 years, wow. so I've kind of covered the waterfront with this book, and um, yeah, it's it really is about the person and the political and, and the individual and the collective and friendships and mm -hmm. mothers, uh, and I just felt that. We needed it, a big book where everything was in it. It's scratching the surface, obviously, even though it is a big book. 
And, uh, and I thought, well, I can draw. I was there for some of it, so I better do it. And it took years. So I thought about, I th thought about it around the, the millennium and it was published in 2019. Mm. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate. Uh, that's just absolutely brilliant. And I think what you've been telling us about Morris just shows the, how interesting it is when we get different perspectives and mm. there's always something new to learn about a person, a theme, an experience. So that is just fascinating. And, and thank you for being so generous and, and sharing that with us as well uh, and bringing that time to life uh, in such detail. So thank you ever so much. Fantastic that you could join us. So uh, we've got about 20 minutes left of, of this morning. So I wanted to throw the floor open to questions. I'm sure you've been brewing up questions, some of you. Gwen, are you there? Gwen Gudda? Uh, yes, I am, yes. Hello, Gwen. We were so delighted that you could join us. Uh, I understand that you were Maurice Dobson's nurse. Uh, mm. I just wondered if you had got a memory that you would like to share or an abiding impression that Maurice left you with. Yes, I was only a young nurse at the time. I think I'm just qualified as a staff nurse. And I was working in Darfield and Maurice became... Uh, I wouldn't say, uh, as far as I can remember, not too ill, but we used to visit a few times a week. And it was always funny, but as other people have said, he was always sharp and he did let you know if he didn't like you. <laughs> so we used to go in and we used to say, oh, has he been okay with you today? And some would say no and some would say yes. If he talked to you, then you were okay. But if not, it could make you it could make your visit tricky. Yeah. So <laughs> it was fun at the time. Yes, a really nice man. But he always said to us that when he died, he were going to have a museum. So we were very nice. That now he, he does have a museum in his memory. So it were really nice. Good. Thank you very much for that. I'm assuming he liked you then, Gwen. Uh, yes, I got on with him, yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it, and I'm really glad that you could come along today and hear other people speak about him as well. Uh, any other questions? Have we got some more questions? Uh, Liz, yeah. Liz. Could I, could I just add something on the Morris theme? Yes, of course. First of all, about the museum. I've been a volunteer, and I'm Darfield born and bred since it opened. Um, I only did one Saturday a month and now I'm retired, I do a lot more. But I just want to say that I never ever walk in that museum without feeling that it's a celebration of Morris and Fred's contribution to the community. It's fabulous. Ken said it's the best in the country. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a celebration of Morris and Fred's life, it's fabulous. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> just a couple of observations. I was seven when Morris and Fred opened the shop. And if Morris was in as a child, clutching my pocket money, going for sweets, I never once came out of that shop with what I really wanted. Mm -hmm. No patience, he shouted at you. He told mm -hmm. you if you hadn't told him in a minute, you were out. And there were six sweet jars, and you have not made your mind up, but he, you know, he got you out. If Fred was in, I came out with what I wanted. 
and picking up on the thing that falls out with you and mm. start with you. I was in the shop with my mum once and somebody complained about something. And he's, as they were leaving, he says, don't trip on the step. But in a way that he meant, I really want you to trip on that. It <laughs> 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 would be very, very rude to people. Uh, and, and all that is true, you know. But the other thing is, he was like a peacock if you asked him anything about catering. He loved to be asked about catering. And my and he was in the catering uh, in the service, wasn't he, Ken? Mm -hmm. He worked in hotels. Hotels, yeah. Yeah. But my mum was involved in the church, she still is, and she was involved in the catering for Mother's Union teas, suppers, harvest teas and suppers. And Morris was her go-to person to say, we've got 57 coming for a ham supper, what do I need? And he mm -hmm. told her exactly what she needed, even to the knife point of butter, you know, there was never any waste. And he'd love to be able to tell you, buy this much boiled ham, that much bread, that much that. Brilliant, thank you, Liz. Uh, any other questions? Has anyone else got any questions for any of our speakers? Well, I've got a question, if that's all right, I can throw my own in. Uh, Jenny, it's a question about Lady Mary. You, you mentioned that her daughter threw away or burnt her berries. How, how was, was Lady Mary's sexuality an open secret in her family? Did, did people know, is there, did, is there evidence to say that people, you know, accepted it or, or didn't accept it? How, how was she regarded? by the rest of her family? Well, the first evidence we got of Lady Mary might have had uh, lesbian tendencies is uh, when she was a child, uh, she wrote to the sister of her future husband and she wrote very romantic letters, husband, but possibly to her best friend. But that was, that kind of happened in that day. A, a woman of her age would not have been able to write to a man who was twice her age. So it's hard to know whether those love letters were actually to Edward, her future husband, or further kind of uh, study, really. Um, but unfortunately, uh, Lady Mary's daughter, Mary, who was the first inoculee, you know, she owed Lady Mary her life in like so many ways, uh, was nothing like her mother. She wasn't outspoken, she wasn't extravagant. She was incredibly conservative and really quite embarrassed about her mother. Um, so her diaries were kept after Lady Mary's death and luckily she shared them. This is Mary the daughter, too many Marys. Uh, Mary the daughter shared them with her other daughter, one of her 11 children who was called Louisa Stewart. Now she was a writer in, uh, in her generation and she remembered lots of the letters that she wrote so she could comment on them. Uh, but a year after her death, her daughter did indeed uh, burn the lot. But we still got a lot of evidence in the letters that she wrote. So I'm afraid I don't know much more about it that I've been looking into the kind of scientific, the inoculation side of Mary to prepare for this kind of anniversary, the 300 year anniversary. But I will, uh, there's a new book coming out. I really wanted to mention this. Uh, uh, previous to March, there's only been academic books on Lady Mary. Uh, but there's a new book that's being published by Pen and Sword uh, Publishing, who are Barnsley Publisher, and it's the first 
uh, book that's been written about Lady Mary uh, for the kind of domestic market and it's being released at the end of next month. And the title of that book is Lady Mary, uh, Scientist and Feminist. So I'm hoping to find out a lot more about that from that book. So hopefully that'll answer some questions. If I find out any more before I do uh, my, my talk, I'll share that with you. That's brilliant, Jenny. Thank you. Okay. I'd be really, really interested to see that book, actually. Was it quite yeah. easy to, well, not easy, not easy, is it? Historical research, but where, 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 where did you, where did you find all the papers and the, the material that you used? Were they easy to, were they easy to access or did they take a little bit of sleuthing to track everything down? Well, a lot of it has, has come from books, uh, vast academic tomes that I've had to order from America and like sift through um, a lot of stuff on the Internet. I've also uh, got a reading card for the Wellcome Institute, which is um, in London. So it's the, the main medical museum in Britain. Now, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the uh, writings at that time through like the Royal Society and the Royal College of Physicians are in Greek and Latin because you had to have gone to Oxford or Cambridge and be able to converse and write in Latin or Greek mm -hmm. in order to contribute to this magazine, which <laughs> so it, sometimes it's been really, really difficult to access mm -hmm. information. Uh, but I'm in correspondence with the writer of this new book, who's called uh, Jo Willett, and she's a multiple BAFTA award-winning dramatist, and her hope is to dramatise Lady Mary's life and uh, to rewrite the history of women in science, because they were there, they're just not recognised. Brilliant. Okay. Well, imagine a drama. Wow. I know. <laughs> the, the that past, would just be fantastic. The house. You know, the turbans, the veils, it's, it's all there. It would be great. Definitely. Does anyone have a question? Because I've got a question for Stephen Miller, if no one's got a question. Shall I ask Stephen? Stephen, in terms of the research for your project, how easy was it to find the stories? Did you get people coming forward? Did, were people happy or at least prepared to talk? kind of about family members or people that they, they knew, or was that a difficult challenge? Did research have to come from newspaper, archives yeah. online, etc.? Mostly we were looking at pre-criminalization, pre-the legalization period. So we we're looking before 1967 and actually a fair amount of the research was Victorian. So it was based on newspaper records, the Barnsley Chronicle and, and other local papers. Uh, in terms of how easy it is, it's actually quite hard just in, in how uh, crimes around homosexuality were described in the press. Um, you know, they're not going to use terms that we would use today. The terms they did use would largely be considered kind of offensive terms today. So you have to have a, a fair idea what you're looking for and be able to pick it apart. They also get classified with a set of crimes um, that are totally unrelated, but they come under uh, crimes around uh, rape, bestiality, um, paedophilia shows how how the crime was kind of classified by the um, government at the time. So yeah, it's difficult. You can think you've found something really fascinating, then you dig into it, you find you found something really quite different. So it was an awful lot of work for the volunteers that did that research to yeah to, to pull those stories apart and make sure that we were looking at what we thought we were looking at, which isn't always easy. There was also men were tried under various different um, different crimes it wasn't um, straightforward and there were different 
amendment acts. So a lot of men were tried under the Vagrancy Act from 1892. It seems an irrelevant act, but it was just the way that they could um, pin something on uh, men who'd been caught out. I suppose the overwhelming thing was actually, it was just totally scattergun. You know, the stories we found, there was no pattern, there was no discernible targeted approach to going for, for these men. Um, it seems like it was bad luck on every occasion. I think there's perhaps a kind of modern myth that um, people were more straight-laced and that they were after these people in the past, and that doesn't come across at all in the historical record. I think what the men said in the 50s trial is very interesting in that it was perhaps more common then than it would be now, um, especially for men that we would consider to be perhaps straight or bisexual today, um, to be having relationships with other men. A lot of that comes from, I suppose, the development of contraception and things. You know, if you go back pre-contraception, um, having a relationship with a woman, there was the risk of uh, a child and then being responsible for that child, maybe having to get married. That's not an issue if you're having relationships with other men, clearly. Um, so I think before marrying age for a lot of men, it was considered a, a you know, a very viable option, um, you know, when you're in your kind of late teens, early twenties. Um, to be having relations with other men seems very, very much the done thing in um, communities, not just in Barnes, certainly. So it, it was hard, but yeah, not, not terribly difficult. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for that. It's just so illuminating. And I, I think everybody who's taking part today will perhaps go away and think, rethink some things that perhaps we've thought is mm. uh, absolutely fascinating. So we're nearly at 12 o'clock. Mm. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone who's taken part. Uh, special thanks to our speakers. I'll just put you back on to Stephen Skelly uh, for Stephen to have the final word. So here you go, Stephen. Oh, I feel honoured. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just thank you so much. I, I, just echoing your words, absolutely fascinating stories. I found out more about Fred's character today um, and Lady Montagu, kind of um, Lady Mary, sorry. Um, that, that's that's a story that's just going to grow and grow. And I hope one day I'm watching a Netflix big budget series uh, with, with her in it. And it's the next Downton Abbey, but based in Barnsley, which would just be the ultimate clue for that. <laughs> Um, yeah, because it's yeah, because you know I'm from Barnsley, and it's it's got a it's got a, an epic and sometimes difficult history. But you know, from what we've we've talked about today, these stories are there, uh, however hidden. And you know, it, it's uh, and thank you for kind of bringing shining light on them, you know, everyone. Um, and uh, we'll be doing our best over the next year or two, and I'll be in touch with many of you to start culling and collecting some of those so that we then have a permanent record through objects and archives and photos in kept in the town hall as long as there's a Barnsley. Okay, so thank you everyone and, and that, that, that's it. Goodbye. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you everybody. Thank you. As much as we love these virtual coffee mornings, it goes without saying that we can't wait to start meeting people in person again. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for latest updates and visit the Barnsley Museum's website. Meanwhile, we've got lots of more podcasts lined up, including more from the Barnsley Archive's Sound Archive. As always, thank you for listening. If you've got any questions, please get in touch with us.